0: When you want to talk about Calvinism's impact on a local church, what do you do? (laughs) You bring in someone that doesn't even understand Calvinism, and then discuss it. Welcome to the Rap Report with Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretations and applications. This is a ministry
1: of striving for eternity. For more content or to request a speaker or seminar for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org.
0: Okay, so recently, if you haven't heard, Layton Flowers had Andy Stanley on to his podcast to discuss, well, Calvinism's impact on the local church. We want to discuss that. I'm going to say right off the bat that I, I do... No, Leighton Flowers personally. I do like him personally, but I disagree with him strongly in his theology. He and I both know we're, that we disagree with one another, but we can still get along. So this none of what I'm saying is uh, personal rips on on him. I don't know Andy Stanley at all. However, I do think that if you listen to his podcast, I'll drop the link in the show notes, but if you listen to the podcast, what you end up seeing is that first off, he has this interview with Andy Stanley, because Andy Stanley decided to donate money to basically Soteriology 101, which is the uh, podcast and ministry that uh, Leighton Flowers is doing. So he's got someone that was a big name donor, got him in to, to do an interview. Do I fault him for that? Well, no. I mean, in one sense, you know, it makes sense. He's wanting to have someone who has a big name and can, can add maybe what he thinks is credibility. Um, I'm sorry. I don't think Andy Stanley would add credibility. At some point, we'll deal with the topic that he had said of, you know, unhinging the old Testament from the new Testament and, and from the church. And yet the reality, you you can't do that just biblically. You just can't do that. So here's the thing. As we examine this, uh, I do want to say that he's has him on. He's discussing Calvinism's impact on the local church. Two men who don't really understand Calvinism. As you're going to see, we're going to play clips, and you're going to hear that Andy Stanley admits he doesn't know this. This isn't the realm he is in. But some of the things they do say is just very enlightening. And I want to deal with some of that stuff. And really, here's the thing. I would like us here at the Rap Report, to be mindful of the fact that people disagree with one another. I am okay with any of you disagreeing with me. Don't just give me your opinion, though. You want to disagree with me, come to me with scripture, okay? That's the thing. What we have is many people who try to be discerning, and really all they are is attacking. And what you end up seeing is in this podcast, in my opinion, is two men who do not understand the opposing position. Leighton Flowers has been told by many, many people who study Calvinism, who teach Calvinism, who understand Calvinism, that his description of Calvinism is a straw man argument, that his view of Calvinism is not the view that anybody that holds to Calvinism, or most people, the majority of people, that he claims, as far as Calvinists, would hold to. And so, what you end up seeing is Andy Stanley will do the same. They will teach, really, a hyper-Calvinism, a view of determinism that most Calvinists, those who hold to Calvinism, would disagree with. There's going to be extremes at either end, and any time that you have to make arguments for your point by going to the extremes, that's a logical fallacy. So, I want us to be aware that I'm saying that I think that these two gentlemen who are talking on Calvinism, I don't think are doing a fair representation of what Calvinism believes. I do not have to hold to a position to rightly define that position. I am a Baptist. Okay, I believe in the principles of Baptists, Baptist thinking and teaching and doctrine, yet when I was in a Presbyterian church preaching from a Presbyterian pulpit and teaching, and we had a first-time visitor who comes into the church, they come to me because I am the gentleman that they saw at the pulpit. So this gentleman comes to me and wants to find out what this church believes. His question was that he grew up Baptist, and he said, Being the fact that he grew up Baptist, he would like to know what this church teaches on the issue of baptism. That was his question. He wants to know that specifically. So how do I answer? Do I give him all the reasons that this church is wrong, that I just spoke from their pulpit? I don't need to do that. Do I disagree? Sure. And that's exactly what I did. I said, listen, I happen to be a Baptist, so I would disagree with the Presbyterian's view of baptism. But let me explain to you what their view is here at this church and what the Presbyterian view of baptism is. And I went into explaining the view through the covenants and how baptism is entering into a covenant relationship, how that includes bringing the children into a covenant relationship with God, not saving them, but bringing them into a covenant relationship with God. And I went through this. At the end of this, the pastor took me aside as we went for lunch and said, Andrew, I got to tell you, I wish that people in my church— understood Presbyterian baptism as well as you, a Baptist, understand it. That's the thing. If you're going to disagree with a position, at least understand the position. That's what I ask. That's what I try to do. Am I perfect? No, I'm not going to be perfect. There's going to be times that I misrepresent other people's positions. I don't do it, I hope, meaningfully and purposefully, but it will happen. Everyone's going to have that happen. But when you build a ministry off of one topic and this is something that I do think and do have issue with with Leighton on I, and I've talked to him personally about this so I'm not saying anything that I haven't spoken directly to him about uh, I think Leighton may be able to have many things to offer the, the body of Christ but when we were doing a Bible study online Bible study on Ephesians he kept making it about Calvinism when the text wasn't even dealing with the issue of Calvinism he, he, he realized that And that's where I see, I personally see a blind spot with him, is that for him, everything is about Calvinism. And he's built a ministry based on that. And anytime someone makes a ministry on one thing, it can become a blind spot to them because they see that in everything. Guys, if you're Calvinists, you know that phrase that I think James White started, or whoever started it, called Cage Stage, where someone becomes a Calvinist, and they see it in everything, and they want everyone to believe what they're believing on Calvinism. So you have that on both ends, okay? Let's be fair about it. But some of the things that we end up seeing here I, I think are incorrect and wrong assumptions to be made about a teaching, in this case, Calvinism. And I want to go through some of these quotes Play them saying it so that you hear it, and we don't have time to play through the full episode. I try to do usually do that play through everything, so you get the context. I will link it so you have the link, so that you can go and listen and see if I've taken the quotes out of context. But here's the thing: you end up hearing. In the early on, they they ended up discussing the difference between Calvinists when it comes to men and women in the churches. And let's listen to what uh, Andy Stanley says about this.
1: What was the surprise in the first century when it came to the people who followed Jesus? It was the number of women who flocked to his message, because Jesus elevated the status of women consistently and immediately. So if there is a theology that put is that is essentially on the surface more in any way offensive to females or to women, I think that's something...
2: I just think that's something we should pay attention to. And anyway, well, back to your practical your and also logically speaking, here's another issue: is that if Calvinism is true, then God has ordained for more men to accept Calvinism than women. In other words, God, <laughs> for some reason, has sovereignly yeah. decreed and yeah. has determined for men to get it and for women to reject it for whatever reason.
0: Okay, let's let's look at this. First off, uh, is it true that in the first century the women were flocking? Well, when we look at the scriptures, we see 12 male disciples. We have Mary, uh, we have Martha, we have his mother, Mary. Not too many other women are mentioned there in those early years. When you go on and you start looking at the other people mentioned, uh, like Timothy and Luke and Silas and lots of other men, well, you have Priscilla and Aquila, so there's a woman with her husband. In other words, you don't have a record for to support the claim that women were flocking to that. Now, there's a reason that you end up seeing that, the fact that you see more men in Calvinism. I, I would say that part of this is twofold. One, you're going to see, and I'll deal with this in a later quote, but you're going to see who it is that's out there. Calvinists typically are also taking a position that women shouldn't be taking a teaching role. So who is naturally going to be the ones taking a more uh, forthright, more open role in teaching? It's not going to be the women because that's not what Calvinists typically would end up arguing is the role of the women to be teaching. So they're going to base it on those who are blogging, writing books, teaching at pulpits, online, doing what? Teaching. If you have a position that the men should be teaching, then women wouldn't be doing that. It's really simple. The the argument that somehow in the first century, women were flocking. Now, here's a thing to always note, and this is just a good thing to do. Look when someone makes a statement and look how they support it. You see, Andy Stanley did not support that argument at all. He made a claim and moved on. He makes a statement with no support and then uses that to make a conclusion. Now, when I made the response, what did I do? I gave you names that you can go look up in Scripture. You can go through and look at all the men that are mentioned in the New Testament and all the women mentioned in the New Testament, and you're going to find an overwhelming number of men for the same reason that we would see this in a, in a more of a tradition of teaching that puts male teachers and not female teachers because you're only going to hear from the men were there more women i'm sure there were more women that were than we have recorded i'm sure there was more men also but you can't make an argument from silence when you say that there was a majority of women flocking the scriptures just don't support that there were women that's that came and followed Christ, but there were far more men that did so. So the conclusion he makes is based off of baseless claim that he doesn't support, and then he makes a conclusion that somehow Calvinism is wrong because of this view. And then then he he gives a quote from Moeller.
1: Wow. Well, here's—I have a quote. I didn't know if this would be appropriate, but I'll bring it up now. Um, You mentioned Al Moeller earlier. Um, Al, I think he must have a man crush on me. I don't know. (laughs) He— Can't quit
0: talking about me. I'm not sure. I've only met him once. And uh, okay, uh, stop. What? What did I just hear? It, it, I'm sorry, but it, it, is this the way you should ever be speaking of uh, a fellow? If you're going to say a fellow brother in Christ, uh, a leader in a church in a in a seminary, that you should speak to him in in this way?
1: Um, you mentioned Al Mohler earlier. Um, Al, I think he must have a man crush on me. I don't know. He <laughs> can't quit talking about me. I'm not sure.
0: He has a man crush. Is, is that the way that you should be speaking about somebody who is a leader in a church? I, I, I'm i sorry. But to me, that comes off as very narcissistic, very self-focused. And, and to, to, to be say oh, he has a man crush on me? That he, he doesn't stop talking about me? D- Andy, does he talk about you in a good way? Or is he warning people about you? think about that it's not that he's speaking of you praising you because he's got a man crush on you it's because more that he's warning people it seems about some of the things that you're saying because it seems like you're going off on a bad path and people are warning it that's the thing look folks there may be some here who really like Andy Stanley I can understand that but you have to ask why is it because of his father some do let's be fair, some do, but the reality is, is that there are many who think he's going down a bad path, he's on a trajectory that's not healthy, and could lead to, well, false teaching. That's how many feel. And and to sit here and to be like, oh, he has a man crush on me? I, I just think that that is disrespectful way of speaking of someone who is a teacher of God's word, someone who is a leader in the church, someone who is a leader in a seminary. I also think it's very narcissistic. Let's go on to hear him talk about his quote. I would love to talk to
1: him. We did have one quick phone call about seven years ago. Um, anyway, he, I um, I was at an ERLC conference, a different one than the one that I was interviewed at, and uh, he opened the conference, and he made this statement, and I gasped out loud, I Everybody else just kept taking notes. I went back and watched the message again to make sure I had not misheard and wrote the quote down. And here's, here's what Dr. Mueller said, talking about the Southern Baptist Convention, to your point. He said, the vast majority of people who've ever been baptized by our people are our own offspring. We've ne- this, this is amazing. We've never been very evangelistic in terms of people who weren't those to whom we gave birth.
0: Okay, so this is an argument, and and keep in mind, this is an argument many make against Calvinism, that they're not evangelistic, and the argument is that he's saying, remember the context, context is how we understand things, this is in the context of Calvinism's effect on the local church, and the argument is that the local church is not evangelizing outside of their own family, because of the Calvinism, that's the assumption that's being led to be understood. However, what was it that Moeller was quoting? That was the Southern Baptists, which include Andy Stanley and Leighton Flowers. The reality is, many of you know that I'm very active in evangelism. Many of the evangelists around the country who are active in evangelism, evangelism also happen to be Calvinists. That's right. The, the, the argument that Calvinists don't evangelize, oh, the hyper-Calvinists, yes, yes, okay, the people who think everything's determined, but that's the extreme, you don't argue from the extreme. And so, the, the, you end up seeing here in this argument that he's making, he's trying to make these claims as if Calvinists don't evangelize, and this is somehow something that is only being done within the family. Listen to this as he continues with this, because Leighton's going to weigh in on this. I'm like, that,
1: that, to me, they should have hit pause on the whole conference and think, say, wait a minute. The Southern Baptist Convention has never been evangelistic except toward the people to whom they gave birth. So then I take that that shocking revelation and then try to line it up with his Calvinism. So to your point, it looks like God has selected more men than women, and he selects primarily the children of believers as opposed to those who are not biological. I mean, So, so, Um, well, here's, I have a, okay,
0: so here, here's the thing that you end up having, okay? The, they're, they're talking about God ordaining more men than women. Okay, first off, note again, no support for that claim. It's a statement. He made the statement earlier that there's more men than women that are coming into being Calvinists and therefore, Based on that baseless assumption, he never supported. I, I listened to the entire podcast. I never heard him give support for that claim. And yet he builds conclusion after conclusion based on that. That somehow God ordains more men than women. Um, God ordains whoever he chooses to ordain. That's the reality. And, and you're not going to be able to argue that I would say, against Scripture, because Scripture makes it really clear. He uses things like in Ephesians, where he says that he elected before the foundation of time. What does that mean? Now, is there time for God? We're going to have a new segment On this podcast that we're going to start doing regularly, we're going to talk about the attributes of God. Why? Because the attributes of God are so important. If you want to understand theology, you must understand the attributes of God, because that is going to clarify your theology. And here you end up seeing that they really don't understand the attributes of God. When God speaks about the beginning of time and something happening, Him, Him choosing something before there was time, um, there is no such thing as time to God. He's eternal. Therefore, he's not bound by time. When he speaks of before the foundation of time, it is not to say that there was some point before there was time. And then and God did something there. And then he started up time. He's trying to say that you and I had absolutely nothing to do with our salvation because it happened all the way back then. That's when the election happened. The election can't be caused by something we do because it happened all the way back before there was time. And, And then you get into the question, well, how did God elect? Well, you have to remember he's omniscient. When you start trying to argue things about God doing something in time, having to be bound by time, and then having to be bound by knowledge of what things we would do, you don't have the God of the Bible. And they would disagree that they're doing that, but this is the thing. When did God elect? Now, if God elected before we were born, just start there. We won't even deal with the phrase before the foundation of time. If God elected... People to be saved before they were born, then their choice had nothing to do with it. And people will end up arguing, as as Leighton and others would probably make the case, is that God knew in his omniscience what they would do. And therefore, that was th- their choice, their free will choice, he would say, is what God based the election on. Then God's not omniscient, truly, because he had to see what people would do. You see, now you no longer have an omniscient God. You have a God who has to rely on the thoughts of men to see what they're going to do. And they're going to make an argument about consistent Calvinism. Well, I would say that the only consistent Arminian is going to be an open theist. Because you have to deny that God knows everything. Why? Because you have to say that man's free will choice is, is what determines their election. Therefore, God had to see what they would do, and he can't know it. I would argue, as many others, that that's the only consistent position. They would disagree. I understand that. That's where we end up having our disagreements. But to argue that somehow God ordained more men than women based on what? What is the basis? Just because there's more men in a teaching that teaches that men should be doing the teaching— Well, duh, of course there's going to be more men that you know about. By the way, there's more male teachers in the Armenian Southern Baptists, the traditionalists, they have more male teachers there too. Does that mean that more men choose? Just think about that. Because, see, their argument does not apply only to Calvinism take their argument, apply it to the traditionalist position. There are far more traditionalists writing and speaking. When we say traditionalists, that's the terms that they use to refer to their position because they don't say they're Arminian. They don't use the ter- those terms. They say traditional. Fine, we'll use their terms. In their terms, who is it that's doing the bulk of the podcasting, the bulk of the teaching, the bulk of the writing, blogging, and all the kind? It's men in the Southern Baptist Convention that are the traditionalists. It's not the women for the same reason, <laughs> okay? So you, you got to be able to apply this and say, does this count both ways? If this applies to the traditionalists just as much as it does the Calvinists, then it's not an argument against Calvinism. And, and this is just, we got to be fair with this. That's what I'm asking. If Andy Stanley is going to be talking about the impact that Calvinism has on the, on the church, then you have to at least be fair with it. Now we get back to this issue of women. Let, let's hear what they say about this.
1: I'll bet the male Calvinist embrace that, and the female Calvinist never, ever get there. The maternal instinct would have a very difficult time reconciling the reality of being a mom with that theology. Just, just a hunch.
2: Yeah, well, the statistics do show that the resurging is very male-dominated. Right. Of course, it is is very young, male, white dominated. And I'm not trying to be uh, racist in that comment. I just it just happens to be the studies are showing that that most of the people in the young, restless reform movement right now are younger, white males. Now, that's not obviously across the board. Obviously, there's exceptions to that. But that is predominantly what you're seeing. And even Piper addresses that issue.
0: Okay, and so here's the thing that applies to traditionalists as well. And he says he doesn't want to get racist, but he's like, and white? Yes, he is getting racist there. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you're the one emphasizing that. And so when you end up making the arguments as they're making, they're saying somehow that women have this maternal instinct that their children going to hell, that was the context, their children going to hell, who children who aren't saved, that somehow they can't agree with this doctrine. Um, <sighs> this is so hard. Because what he doesn't even realize, I don't think, where does your theology come from? Your feelings? Because if that's your, if that's where your theology is from, you might as well be charismatic. Okay? You might as well go, and this isn't a dig on charismatics. I mean, I, I, charismatics will be honest and open about the fact that they are more of an emotional-based theology, emotional-based worship. And the reality is, is that's what he's arguing that somehow the the problem with the theology is the material instinct just they they can't go there and that's why it's more male dominated the the reason it's more male dominated is very simple because in this teaching in these churches that would hold to this they would not have women teachers it's really that simple okay and the things that they're saying apply just as much to the, you know, to to the uh, traditionalists as well. Now I want to get to what Leighton said. Let me play this again. Right now, of course, now. It, is.
2: it is very young, male, white-dominated, and I'm not trying to yep. be uh, racist in that comment. I just it just happens to be the studies are showing that that most of the people in the young, restless reform movement right now are younger white males.
0: Okay, really, you know. There is a group just for women called Theology Gals. They have like 4,000 women that are reformed, and they want to talk the theology. I mean, there is a resurgence in Christianity. That's what it is. It's not a male-female thing. You see how they're all basing this whole thing on one thing that was said earlier, just a claim made, no support for it, it, they continue to, to redo this, and yet where is the evidence? Because the things they're saying now apply to their position as well. Their position, their traditionalists have the same issue. They're mostly white. They're mostly male. Does does that mean that somehow they're in the wrong? And if it's the case that it happens to be that there's more whites, men, men, in America, where, by the way, 80% of America would be considered white, well, less than that, let's say 60 to 80. So why wouldn't you expect, in a country that's majority white, to have more white people teaching? It's not that that there's some sort of out of balance thing there, there's plenty of African-Americans who are also very reformed, and, and they recognize that. But they put it in, oh, that's just uh, like an anomaly. No, there's a, there's a resurgence within the African-American community for, for, and you really want to take a look at it, that's where there's a real resurgence going on. My, you know, as far as percentage-wise, you can go go to the bar podcast. Go to the guys at the bar on the Bar Network, and you're going to hear a whole bunch of Reformed African—well, most of them African-American, they now have the uh, uh, pastor's discussion, so those guys aren't African-American. But they they start—they were—the guys that started that are all African-Americans who happen to also be Reformed, okay? They're Calvinists. There is a resurgence going on I just don't think that those are the circles that Andy Stanley and Leighton Flowers are in to know that. And so this is the thing. When you're going to make arguments like this, uh, my plea is to know the other side. Don't just make baseless arguments or conclusions or things like this that, look, I recognize to, to Leighton Flowers' crowd, okay, his audience is anti-Calvinist. Okay. This is going to feed right into his audience. However, the question you must ask is, are the arguments valid? See, they're making arguments against Calvinism when those same arguments apply to them. Let's hear what they end up saying about parents, because this is where you end up seeing. Here, They already mentioned this thing about mothers. Andy Stanley and Layton have some interesting things to say here.
2: Yeah, and that's, been, that's definitely been one of my arguments is that it's not a tenable way of living life. Um, and it is... How do you raise your kids that way? I mean, you were a parent when you were a Calvinist, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, well, it, how, it, do it,
1: you just... I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm asking, honestly, this is one of yeah. my questions for you is do you allow your child to pray a prayer of repentance and salvation and then you just hope it took and then when they repray it at 12, you hope <laughs> that one took, then they go to camp and they repray it again? Are you, as a parent, and then when you're... Child is seventeen and decides he or she is going to run off and kind of abandon faith. Do you think? Right. Oh no, I, no problems because they prayed that prayer when they're eight. Or do you? I mean, what does a what do parents do when their children walk away from faith? Do they shrug and say they weren't one of the
2: elects? Good thing I have three other
1: kids. Or what? What's the?
2: No, I mean, uh, for me personally, it was there was probably a, a cognitive disconnect there. There wasn't. There would it, have to be as yeah, a parent. Yeah, but but I mean. To to be to be fair, I mean Piper does talk about um, in one of his broadcasts or, or one of his books. He talks about his children and even saying, you know, if God for whatever reason in His eternal purposes chose not to elect one of my children, then I then I must trust Him. And so there there is a sense in which Calvinists have to come to that yeah. realization that maybe one of my babies
0: is loved by me more than God. Right. Um, and no, no, notice what he said: loved by me more than God. As if somehow, if God punishes sin, he doesn't love them? You see the arguments, they fall apart. Because this messes with the love of God. What does it mean for God to love? Andy Stanley, his view seems to be, God is love means that God will spoil me because I'm the highest priority in the world. The emphasis here is on the human being and not on God. That child is a sinner. That child is a criminal in God's sight. The real question for Andy Stanley and Leighton Flowers is this. What do you do when your children don't believe? Because it's up to you. You, Did you not communicate the gospel well enough? What do you do when they claim, they say a prayer, they walk an aisle, they make a profession of faith, and then walk away? You say they lost their salvation? Therefore, God is not faithful, that God says that he would save if they pray and then he takes it away? You see, this is where you end up having the problems that they have. How are you as a parent going to deal with the fact that your child doesn't believe? You can't rest upon God. You can only rest upon yourself and your child's belief or choice. Well, if your child believes and says he believes and he chose God and then walks away— What do you do with that? You see, you have that dilemma far more than a Calvinist would. You know, and and for folks who know me know that I don't take the label Calvinism or Calvinist because it is so misunderstood. But what I do say is if you're going to argue against Calvinism, fairly represent it. This is not a fair representation to argue that there has to be some sort of disconnect. Now, the fact is, so many people have explained to Leighton that he does not understand or fairly re- represent what Calvinism is, and yet he says, well, he used to be a Calvinist. Well, saying that you used to be something that you didn't understand doesn't mean that you understood it. If, if I sit here and say that I used to be whatever, I say I used to be Catholic— But you asked me what Catholicism is, and I can't explain it at all. I'm not an expert on Catholicism. When when someone says there used to be a Calvinist, as if that's the argument, and that gives them the authority to speak, well, quite frankly, this is no different than the professing atheist who grew up in a Christian home, maybe a home like they're describing, and they walk away from the faith— Because they thought it was about their choice and they walk away and say, I used to believe, but now I am an expert on Christianity because I was taught that in Sunday school, never understood anything about it, but I walked away from it and I can speak as an expert. That's what atheists do all the time. We deal with it a lot on our Apologetics live show where people come in and say, I used to be a Christian. No, you weren't not according to 1 John 2.19. You are a hypocrite that stopped pretending. And the reality is when you come in and they make this argument that, well, I used to be this, and therefore I'm an authority. And then so many people say, but you misrepresent the position. No. And and they're going to do that same thing. Now, here's the notice. When I say that they're making arguments that are the same as atheists make, notice what I do. I explain what the argument is. Atheists say, I used to be a Christian, and therefore I'm an authority on Christianity. Leighton would say, I used to be a Calvinist, therefore I'm an authority on Calvinism. But in both cases, you see people that misrepresent what Christianity is or what Calvinism is, respectively, and that would show that you might have been raised being told what that is, but you never faithfully understood it. Let's see what these guys say about Calvinism regarding atheism.
1: I know this is a bit extreme, but it becomes a little bit Mormon esque a little bit and it becomes a little bit atheist esque. I mean, practically speaking, and you know, shave off the rough edges of this statement, but practically speaking, I feel like that hyper Calvinism is a bit like atheism with eternity thrown in, practically speaking, not theologically, but practically speaking, it's um everything is determined. Um, it's just that if you're an atheist, everything's determined and when you breathe your last breath, it's over. Um, for hyper Calvinist, or you know, hyper reform, or the de- de- the determinist, um, everything's determined. But you know, eternity gets thrown in. I I don't know in terms of practicality how there's that much difference, and um, it seems like a very difficult worldview to live out. But somehow they manage it. So
0: and so here's the thing. Again, what's he doing? He's going to the extreme. Now he's admitting that he's going to the extreme. Hey, give him credit. At least he's admitting he is doing that. He's admitting that he's going. the extreme? Well, not really. He's saying hyper-Calvinism, but he lumps that in as if that's what all Calvinists believe. If you're going to talk about Calvinism's effect on the local church, then deal with what the majority of Calvinists would believe, not the extreme. He lumps it in with Mormonism. I never saw that connection. Never. Just throws it out there. It is an argument that you throw out there and somehow this teaching is the same as Mormonism, therefore it's wrong. Well, this may shock you, but do you know that there's some things that Mormonism teach that are actually right? They're biblical. They're true. Not everything, but there are things that they're going to teach that are true. There is no false religion that teaches everything they say is going to be false. No, they always have some truth that they're going to agree with what the Bible says. But, you know, he just says, oh, it's Mormonesque." How is it Mormonesque? Explain that. Well, it's, it's atheism with eternity thrown in. How? How is that? Now, he's dealing with determinists, not Calvinists, right? So make that distinction. So do atheists argue that we're de- determinism? Well, there are some extreme atheists. So I guess if you're going to go to the extremes on both ends, but you don't argue a system from the extreme. And, and then they talk about the disconnect. So let's look at that. Well, any, any time, wow. anytime a Calvinist
2: can, is consistent in his Calvinism and he brings critique of what's happening in the world, there's a cognitive disconnect there. Because totally. ultimately, like, if, if, okay, so 9-11 happened. Okay, so nine eleven happened according to God's purposes and His will. He brought it to pass for His glory. He, he planned it exactly. If if Calvinism is true, okay. So, I'm, and again, let me let me read from the Westminster or the London Baptist Confession here. It says, "God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever to come to pass." Yet He hath not decreed. It goes on to say. Anything because he foresaw it as future. In other words, he's not foreseeing it and permitting it. That's not what they mean right. by decree. They mean he he has brought it to pass, as Piper says in his in his book that he by Mark Talbert. In other words, this is something God has planned. And so, if you besmirch that thing, if you say that was a horrible bad thing, then you've just called God's plan horrible and bad. You've just besmirched what you think God did for His own self glorification. And there must be a cognitive disconnect for 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 Piper and Spr- Sproul and uh, previously Sproul, obviously he's he's gone on to be the mm-hmm. Lord and uh, Moeller and others to besmirch or to or, or to call out negative things that they see happening in the convention that they believe God unchangeably ordained for His own self glorification. Yeah. It it's like are you do you see how logically this just does not play itself out? It does not work for you to be able to critique something that you believe. God brought to pass for his own self-glorification. Well, they toss it into the bucket of mystery.
0: No, we don't toss it into the bucket of mystery. We say that God ordained the ends and the means. That's the reality. Look, if you don't believe that God is sovereign, which that's what's at issue here. Is God in control? Absolutely His. There's not a single atom in the universe that's outside of his control because he's sovereign. However, you talk about a disconnect, what do these guys do When it comes to 9-11, I mean, they just say, well, man is sovereign, man is in control, man overrode what God might have wanted. But notice the emphasis. And this is where you see the difference. The emphasis with the Calvinists is more on God's holiness. God is in control. The reality is that if you go and you look at your Old Testament, I know many people want to avoid that. They don't understand the history there. What do you have? You have generation after generation after generation of Jewish people who decided to go against God's law. God said, Every seventh year, you will let the land rest. You will give it a rest. And they said, no, we don't trust in God enough. We are not going to depend upon God, and we are not going to let that land rest. And for 70 of those Sabbath years, they did not let the land rest. And what did God do? He said, because of that, I... God will bring a judgment. He sent all of these prophets to say, Thus says the Lord, there will be a judgment upon you. And Jeremiah says that judgment will be for 70 years to make up for the 70 Sabbaths that you rejected, that you ignored. Because of that, you will be judged. And that judgment will have a good purpose. The reality is what you see from guys like this is they view everything from man's perspective. Everything is about what is best for man, not from God's perspective and what's best for God. See, God's ways are not our ways. We're going to look at that later on in this podcast. And you end up seeing that for these guys, they see everything from a man-centered perspective, that somehow God's love is spoiling people. Giving people everything they want, and and somehow if a if a child is of a is not saved, th- the mother can't deal with that because she can't trust in God. I have a son that to this point seems to not believe in Jesus Christ, and therefore, do I sit there and go, oh, what was me? What? Why didn't I share the gospel with him enough? No, I trust in the fact that he's heard the gospel message. And even though it breaks my heart, if he was to die without Christ, he'd spend eternity in hell. I have a mother who died, and I know so many people think this is so horrible to say. My mother died, and I have no reason to believe that she is not burning in hell today. Do I want that? Absolutely not. I do not want that. However, God is sovereign. I have to recognize that even my mother, who I love dearly, she was a criminal in God's sight. She was an enemy of God. So what becomes more important? My love for my mother and therefore my theology should be determined through my my emotions? Or do I read scripture and just submit to what it says? My emotions be gone. Who cares? That's the reality. Now, why do we correct them? Well,
1: Andy said we should. This isn't a world I spend a lot of time in. So feel free to correct me publicly. I'm, you know, this is your world. I, I just dance around the periphery, but,
0: and that's right. That's why we're doing this because this is not his world. That's why I question Layton on this. If Layton flowers wants to have a podcast with Andy Stanley, because Andy Stanley donated some money and he wants to, I mean, look, the, the world of media today is about building platforms and there's many people trying different ways to build platforms okay and for anybody who's going to criticize Leighton Flowers for utilizing someone who's got a bigger name than him to help promote him and then those people do the very same thing or even worse they end up doing things like clickbait where they they d- give misleading titles so people will click on something and then it has nothing to do with what they say or just just to get the traffic that would be worse okay I'm not going to fault that, but here's the thing. My my challenge to, Andy, uh, to Leighton Flowers would be this. If you have Andy Stanley on, why in the world would you discuss something that he admits is not his world? It's something he doesn't study. He's not an expert at it, clearly. He doesn't understand enough about the subject, clearly. Have him talk about something that you feel he is knowledgeable on that is his world. And we are kind of correcting him here publicly because, well, he said so. So now, do I think Andy Stanley is going to listen to this? Oh, I hope so. I hope someone would share it with him because, look, I I care for what he's teaching. I would love to, you know, look, if there was a way that I could talk with Andy Stanley, it wouldn't be on air. I'd talk with him privately just like I did Robert Shuler's son when Robert Shuler's son and I were on be able to have dialogue that wasn't public no one knows that 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 went on we had some dialogues where I tried correcting some things and we started talking we you know I had planned that when I got out to to California I was going to try to get together with him but at, at that point it was clear where the things were going and and he cut off communication okay but the reality, I do the same thing because I, I care for the truth of God's word, and that's where we need to be right now. This is, I think, the thing that got me the most is this next clip, and I want to deal with this.
1: And some of the notes I took as I thought about our conversation, I wrote that um, essentially, and I I read your book, and um, anyway, oh, that if God causes or is behind or sovereignly institutes all evil. It really blurs – in fact, this takes me back to the parallel between um, the New Calvinist or hyper-Calvinism and atheism. Um, This blurs the distinction between good and evil because anything that glorifies or reflects well on God has to be good. So when evil reflects good on God, then evil becomes good. I just don't know how – again, I don't know how to live – With that dichotomy, I I don't know how to live in that world where good becomes evil and evil becomes good. And we're back to the question of, can you have a basis for morality apart from God? And, you know, Christians say you can't have a basis for morality apart from God. (laughs) The Calvinists say, that's right, you can't have a basis for morality apart from God. But when you look at the basis of morality, good becomes evil and evil becomes good because God's behind it all. I just I mean, that may be true. If it's true, it certainly is. Does not the, the Scripture does not bear witness to that, and neither neither does human logic. But I, I realize that my human logic is so skewed that I can't trust that either.
0: I agree. He can't trust that either because it is skewed. Because Calvinists don't make the arguments that evil is good and good's evil. I mean, th- th- it's a straw man. You're going to say it doesn't agree with logic. Well, here's the thing. Logic would say that if you're arguing a straw man argument, a straw man argument is to name that fallacy. That's, a you know, we actually we could, you know, that's one of the, the segments we do is name that fallacy. That's a straw man fallacy. That is when you build up a definition for something that's not the right definition, and then you attack it because it's easy to knock down. The argument he made is not the count. It's not an argument I hear any Calvinist except the hyper-Calvinist make, the, the determinist. And here's the thing, if you're going to argue that that's Calvinism, then be consistent and say that's hyper-Calvinism, it's not what all Calvinists believe, therefore you should have this hyper-Calvinism in the local church, which you wouldn't do because, well, yeah, hyper-Calvinism is not prevalent in the local church. Um, they mention the young, restless, and reformed. They're not hyper-Calvinists, typically. So you, you see you have that. Where it's a straw man argument, that's not the argument that gets made. I would just challenge this. Now, look, I, I have, I've had shared a meal with Leighton Flowers. I, I don't know Andy Stanley at all. I, I would like to think that I can consider Leighton Flowers a friend. We are cordial. We, we've talked a number of times on the phone. Um, I have no ill will on him. Do I disagree with his theology? Well, clearly, does he disagree with my theology? Clearly, would I disagree with Andy Stanley on a whole host of things? But the reality is that what I challenge them to do, if their arguments are so weak that they cannot address what people that espouse Calvinism actually say and believe, then you are not, you can't appeal to human logic. I'm sorry, because you have a straw man argument. And as long as you're fighting against the straw man, logic is not on your side. It means when you appeal to logical fallacies, it means that your argument is invalid. An invalid argument is not logical. And so I, I would challenge uh, this when people do this, please understand both sides of an issue, please Can you prove that God is a Trinity? Can you prove that Jesus is God? Can you defend the Christian faith? And what is it that
1: Christians
2: truly believe? The new book by Andrew Rappaport, What Do We Believe?, will answer those questions and more. Some people just don't understand what the Church is today. But
1: this book will go through the history and meaning of the Church. And what's more important than to understand man's sinfulness and God's salvation? Get your copy at WhatDoWeBelieveBook.com or at the StrivingForEternity.org store. The good news is Striving for Eternity would love to come to your church to spend two days with your folks, teaching them biblical hermeneutics. That's right, the art and science of interpreting Scripture. The bad news is somebody attending might be really upset to discover Jeremiah 2911 should not be their life verse. To learn more, go to strivingforeternity.org to host a Bible interpretation made easy seminar in your area.
0: And that's really what we're talking about here, hermeneutics. We're talking about how you interpret. Uh, this is important. This is not something to take lightly. That you, If you use wrong hermeneutics, if you use your personal emotions, your personal feelings to interpret Scripture, you are not going to come up with God's Word. Sorry, here, I'll quote, uh, I'll paraphrase Calvin. Um, but, you know, he said that if, if you are twisting God's Word, you no longer have, or if you're trusting scripture, you no longer have God's word, you have man's word. And when you misinterpret God's word, when you t- purposely or in or without intention, take God's word and misapply it, misinterpret it, you do not have God's word. You have man's word, Um so here's a new segment I want to do. I want to start doing this regularly is look at the attributes of God. And some of these, the, the first attribute we're going to look at fits in very well here with this. As we look at the attributes of God, the first attribute that I always teach when I teach my theology class, whenever I teach my theology classes, I always start with the attributes of God. So we rightly understand our theology is based in the nature and attributes of God. The first attribute you must look at is his incomprehensibility. In we his incomprehensibility is the fact that everything that is known about God is known through ultimately through scripture is where we get the most revelation. But that which is revealed in scripture is not all that can be known of God. There's far more to God than he reveals in scripture. There's far more about God than we can know yet. What he does reveal that we obey. Let's look at some scripture. Deuteronomy twenty nine, twenty nine. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Isaiah fifty five, verse eight, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You end up seeing in Psalm uh, 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and and his greatness is unsearchable. We see in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 34, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who can know the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? One last verse. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one can comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The reality is we end up seeing is that we cannot know everything there is to know about God, but that which he has revealed to us, that we can know, that we can understand, and that we obey, those things that we learn from that. And we end up seeing here is that Scripture teaches us that God is incomprehensible, that we can't fully know him. Now, that is the first attribute. By the way, I'll give a plug, and I'll give a note a list in the show notes. I'll give you a link for to buy our Attributes of God card. We have a quick reference card to going through the Attributes of God. Why? Well, actually, I pray through the Attributes of God in my prayer time. I go through every one of these attributes, and I pray them back to God. It helps to focus the rest of my prayer. Because when I'm going to think about me myself, what is it that's going to keep someone like an Andy Stanley or a Leighton Flowers from the things that I'm saying here? I think that they're doing wrong. It is being if you spend that time to study and go through these attributes of God and you pray through them every time, you're less likely. You're going to be much less likely to to fall into error in in thinking that somehow man should be the center. These I have 31 attributes of God that I try to go through every day that is going to be helpful to us to go through those things and examine those things and look at them. And so I, we offer a card that breaks the attributes God into three different categories, attributes of deity, attributes of personality, attributes of morality. And we're going to go through those, that this is something that I don't know. Many people that define those in the cat, those categories usually do a communicable incommunicable, which just means communicated means that they're shared with man As far as being made in the image of God, those attributes that are communicated to man, like the fact that he has emotions, the fact that he has a spirit, things like that, that we share in those. And then there's those that are incommunicable. We don't communicate. And things like omniscience, we don't have that attribute. So I have broken it up differently. But here's the thing. Let us think about the fact that God's greater than our ability to understand. Listen to some of the arguments that you heard from, from Andy Stanley. What was he arguing? This doesn't make sense to me. Well, you know what? That's the argument I hear from Muslims when they talk about, well, how could God die on a cross? How could God be three in one? It doesn't make sense to me. What is their sovereign? Their human reasoning. Their ultimate authority is their ability to reason. The same thing could be said here with Andy Stanley. He says, I, "This doesn't make sense. This doesn't. This doesn't fit. I doesn't. How, how do, can you say this to about a child?" The reality is, is when you look at these things, we're not appealing to mystery. We're appealing to incomprehensibility, the fact that God is greater than our ability to understand Him, and we won't understand everything there is to know about God. But the point being, is that what we do know about God. He's revealed to us, and that is what we understand. Do we understand everything? No. So to sit there and go, oh, well, it's a mystery. Well, if you fully understand God, if you can say that your God is someone that you can fully comprehend, then you don't have the God of the Bible. I'm just saying. I say that to Muslims all the time. You don't have the God of the Bible if you can fully comprehend him. That's the argument that, that gets made by Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't understand the Trinity. Good then your God is not the God of the Bible. The Bible that is a trinity, one that I can't fully comprehend, that's the God of the Bible. So that is one of the new segments that I want to start doing in the podcasts. The other thing that I want to do is a new segment is, you know, one of the things that I love about Logos Software is they took one of the things that I gave back many years ago, a uh, hundred some different uh features that I would like to see in their uh, software. And actually, within a release or two, they had them all in. One of the ones that I like the most, or not the most, but I like a lot, is the fact that one of the things I would do in my study is to just open a Bible dictionary, Bible encyclopedia to a random section and just read. Just read it every day. It helps you to understand the background of of the text. People sometimes ask me when I preach, how is it that I, I have this... This wealth of knowledge of the culture and the times and things like that, well, it, it really comes because of the practice of just opening the Bible, dictionary, or opening a Bible encyclopedia randomly and just reading. Now, part of the problem we have here is on this podcast, we don't have time to, to read longer sections. Most of, most of them are going to be longer sections when you get into that, but we, we end up just wanting to make a habit of doing that. So Lagos has, if you have Lagos software, if you want, you can, I'll put a link in the show notes where you can get Lagos software and get free, five free books from Striving for Eternity on our page. And you can look at that in the show notes. I'll try to put that in. So I just opened randomly to Caiaphas. And so here's what it says. Joseph, also called uh, Caiaphas, was high priest from AD 18 to 36. When he was deposed by uh, Valentellus, governor of Syria, he was son-in-law to Annas and seems to have worked in close cooperation with him. Uh, He was high priest at the trial of Jesus and during the uh, persecutions, uh, sorry, yeah, persecution is described in the early chapters of Acts. So there's a little bit about Caiaphas, but make that a practice. Just randomly open up a Bible dictionary, read it every day. I used to, I do that with a cup of coffee. I used to do it with a Bible dictionary. Now I have my Logos that opens up in the homepage and randomly does that. So I like that. It's a little bit easier for me. But uh, my challenge to folks is this. First and foremost is if you're going to critique somebody, try to be fair about their position. I hope... I'm sure that Leighton will listen to this. Why? Because I'm going to send it to him. But (laughs) I'll send it to Andy Stanley if someone gives me his email address. But I would hope that I didn't misrepresent their positions. And trust me, if I misrepresented anything that Leighton Flowers said or believes, he will do a four-hour podcast about it. Don't worry. He will do that. Um, It could be 20 minutes of what I say. It could be two minutes of what I say. He'll do a three-hour podcast. Trust me. But the thing is this, is that what, I want to be as fair with their position. I wish they would be fair with with mine. And this is something that people need to do, especially in online, when people are out there online and, and criticizing one another, you need to be fair about the other side's position. If they're telling you you're misrepresenting them, take heed to that, especially when it's happening over and over and over again. And Andy Stanley just isn't the guy that should be talking about Calvinism's effect on the church. That's my thought. So uh, I'd encourage you guys to go check out Striving for Eternity. we got a lot of things going on. The Christian podcast community is going to be making major news this month. As you're going to be hearing, we're going to be starting to open up to other podcasts. Theology Gals is in the process of coming over. We have Justin Peters with the Didache podcast that he is starting to, to podcast, so we're Start to subscribe to those. You can do that now. There's also another podcast you're going to be hearing, and that is So You Want to Be a Podcaster. That is a Christian podcast community exclusive podcast. Uh, well, not exclusive because anyone can subscribe, but it is for the Christian podcast community. But we are teaching people how to be podcasters. You want to get into podcasting, this is one of the ways we at Striving for Eternity want to disciple you through the Christian podcast community. And that is going to be, we're going to teach people how to go about podcasting, teaching you the the tools, the techniques, everything you need to know, and help them along. And then we have our community. Our community is where we're going to actually host people and help them in podcasting and being where we are helping one another as a community, promoting one another, talking to one another about how to improve their podcasts, helping one another in ministry. A strange idea, I know, but be listening for that and also listen subscribe to the Christian Podcast Community podcast because it is its own feed on that one you get everything that's on the community in the community but here's the thing January 27th you're also going to get a podcast that's exclusive on the Christian Podcast Community podcast and that is the best of 2018 we're going to have a best of podcast of the best podcasts and best podcast episodes that we at the Christian Podcast Community are, have voted on and feel are the best ones for you maybe to check out. So subscribe to the Christian Podcast Community Podcast as well. I also must mention, if you've been wondering, hey, what happened to the rap report dailies? I got the longer edition, this one here you're listening to, but where are the dailies? Those two-minute Monday through Friday they're gone. Well, no, not really. They are on the Rap Report Daily podcast. They have now separated. You will no longer hear those short two-minute episodes on this feed. If you're looking for them, you must subscribe to the Rap Report Daily. So go and do that now. Until next week, go and strive to make today an eternal day for the glory of God.